Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. six-week study on the cross and what the cross means. Anybody remember what we we talked about last week? Yeah, yeah. But it was the wisdom of God, right? The cross was the wisdom of God. Okay, what was the... Anybody remember a couple weeks ago what we talked about? I'm even having trouble placing it. I know if we looked at our notes here, we would know... The cross as the suffering of God. Maybe that was last week. Was that last week? The suffering of God. God's suffering. And uh, the first week was the wisdom of God. Last week was uh, God's suffering. This week I want to talk about the cross as God's justice. And I don't don't know if I can do justice to this topic, uh, ironically. Uh, But let's take a, a stab at it. Maybe we can get onto the surface of things and plunge deeper another time. But... Um, Romans chapter 3 tells us that God takes sin seriously. I think some people think that Christianity is one of those religions where uh, God just winks at sin and he acts as if it's no big deal. But it's really not when you explore uh, how God deals with sin. And we should know that he's a just God. Um, What do we mean by that? Well, First, uh, Psalm 50, verse 6 says, and, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. And let's just take a moment here to point out the fact that uh, righteousness and justice are related terms. Okay, so when you're talking about God's justice, you're talking about him doing what's right, that he is right, and he's able to, he's a, he, he's able to declare others as right, and also, I think, to make others right. Uh, right. In other words, he, he can impute righteousness to us because of his sacrifice where it's not a righteousness we deserve, but he's, he gives it to us. But then I think he also, as we walk with him, imparts righteousness to us through the Holy Spirit. Um, it's been a long-standing mistake, I think, to, to imagine that the Holy Spirit's main job is to bestow spiritual gifts. I think that's a, a secondary thing. The Holy Spirit's first name is what? Holy, right. Spirit of holiness in the Old Testament. And so his main uh, work is the sanctifying work in our lives. And then also he does, uh, he does other things. He, he appropriates salvation uh, to our lives. He mediates salvation to us, in other words, so that we can live it out. So, in other words, God imputes righteousness to us, which we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. But he also, in time, as we walk with him, he he sets our lives right before him so that we live right. Any kind of Christianity that preaches that you're just saved and on your way to heaven, but there's no transformation demanded, uh, falls short of being biblical. Okay, God demands that we, in response to his grace, live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. So, uh, some... 11 verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Psalm 99 verse 4, the king is mighty. Uh, He loves justice. You have established equity in Jacob. You have done what is just and right. Matthew 12, 18, 
Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. It's important to God that uh, we understand that he is a just God. So we are talking about dimensions of the cross, and tonight this is our subject. The cross is God's justice, Romans three twenty one through 26, which we'll look at in some more depth here in a moment. When the Bible talks about justice... Um, what, is, what does that mean to you when we say that God is just? And I'm not, uh, we're not looking for a critical answer, so you tell me, tell me what you think. We're not going to, we're not going to shoot it down. Yeah, I like, uh, C.S. Lewis calls, says that some people want God to be a benevolent old granddad that it can be said at the end of the day that he was glad that fun was had by all. Some people want that, but that's not God. Okay, that's good. What else? Okay. That's good. And that talks about our our end goal. I think God's end goal is to set things right. And he's, he's begun now. He's not waited. Um He's not mean. That's good. He's not mean. And in displaying his wrath, it's not meanness, which we'll, we want to talk about more. Does God being just mean that we all start out at the same starting block in life? Some, some politics would like us to think so or want it to be that way, but that's just not the way life is. Some people are, are smarter and prettier and more skilled and more talented than we are. That's always the way that life is. And some people are less. And uh, yet, in the end, God is going to judge each person according to what they've done with what he's given them. So there's justice in that. What, what else do you think of when you think of God's justice? Authority? Okay. He has the authority to judge, doesn't he? Okay. What else? Anything else? What's that? His way is right. I like it when David confesses his sin in Psalm 51. Your judgments concerning me are right. It's like, okay, I acknowledge I'm not the victim here. I did this to myself, and you're right in calling me on it, God. Okay, good. Fairness. Okay, Paula. Yes, it's the right thing to do in every circumstance. He brings out the truth. Okay, good. Um, in one of the definitions I read on the justice of God, I think this is Shedd, William T. Shedd, a Reformed theologian. He says, justice is that phase of God's holiness which is seen in his treatment of the obedient and the disobedient subjects of his government. That means you know, people who are obedient or disobedient. 
The notion of debt or obligation necessarily enters into justice. Sin is indebtedness. Sin is indebtedness. When we sin against God, there's a sin debt. Uh, someone else has said, I think it was Thomas Oden, he says, sin without punishment mocks justice. A law without penalty is merely advice. He goes on to say, withhold from your child or friends all negative feedback and all resistance of evil and see what happens. It takes uncommonly optimistic assumptions about humanity to assume that all Negative reinforcement can be taken away without human harm. Okay, as if we just we don't need any restrictions whatsoever or anybody to uh, call out sin for what it is. Um, God responds to sin with wrath. What do you imagine wrath to be like? Hmm? Harsh, okay, maybe unpleasant. What's that? Whipped, swift. Whipped. My ch- I went back to my childhood. Boy, you're going to get a whipping. <laughs> Scary. Okay, what's that? Difficult. Okay. Um, let me point out a distinction that sometimes I think we, we might fail to make. I do. Um, wrath differs from passionate anger, which is immediate and strong. Wrath is more settled in the long term. The wrath of God suggests the continuing repulsion of holiness of God against sin. Um, Here I was thinking when I I read that definition about, um, maybe in James, I think James says this, it might be said somewhere else, uh, God sets himself against the proud. What do you think that means, when God sets himself against someone? He's going to humble them. He's in opposition to their pride, right? And that's, that to me is a, an understanding of God's wrath is that he's not uh, emotional as one who flies off the handle. Like when you discover somebody has sinned against you or you discover your, your kid's done something that has really, really disappointed you or, or somebody you love or this certain thing has happened and we all of a sudden, because of the discovery of new information, anger rises up. Is that possible with a God who already foreknows for him to, for anger to rise up within him? I think what we have in wrath is a determined uh, reaction against sin. And I saw this. I went to a uh, somebody I knew had a, a court case, and it was the it was the pre-trial hearing where they had to talk about uh, what kind of charges were brought. And I saw a cool. Um, a cool and calm system of justice that was acting against the lawbreaker. The judge wasn't angry. The judge was pleasant. But she was there to dish out justice. And it was as cool and collected as you could imagine. I thought, this, this must be in some way what God is like. Okay, you've committed this sin. Here's the punishment for that. He doesn't have to be in a rage for him to respond in a way against sin. I think he does grieve because of sin. But as far as losing his temper, God doesn't lose his temper and react in a way that uh, uh, human anger does. Human anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. Whatever you think about that, uh, the Bible says this, that the soul that sins shall die. In Genesis two seventeen, when you eat of the tree, you will die. 
Ezekiel 18.4 and 20, the soul who sins is the one who will die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so these are all responses of God's justice to sin. Is that he's saying here are the here are the consequences of that. And even though God knew Adam and Eve had sinned, you remember he goes into the garden in the cool of the day and I don't know how you picture this, but I picture it like he's gonna go spend time with Adam, like he does Adam and Eve, like he does every day. And of course, God hasn't changed, but Adam and Eve have changed because they've sinned. Where are you, Adam? As if God doesn't know. He never asks a question he doesn't know the answer to, he always knows. He knows where he is. What have you done? And, of course, uh, they ate of the tree. Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Yes, we did. Why are you covering yourself behind those trees? Well, we're naked and we're ashamed. And so, uh, you know, God has to act against those sins. Divine love didn't plead to waive the requirements of justice. He doesn't, God doesn't say, well, I love you so much that it's okay. He doesn't do that. No, he responds in a different way. Uh, it doesn't waive the requirements of justice, but it takes them on directly, and it transmutes them. It changes them. God cannot pardon sin until provision has been made for its cure. An accomplished sin cannot be cured by mere penitence, where we just say we're sorry and future avoidance. It has to be expiated. It has to be taken away. Sin has to be taken away. And I think sometimes we fail to understand that. We'll say we're sorry, and we'll say we're sorry over and over again to God, and we fail to realize that what God really wants to do is take the sin away. He wants to take it away, and he's made provisions for that to happen. God has to act justly towards sin. I want to suggest uh, three things here before we get into the depth of our passage. Uh, God has to act justly towards sin for his own sake because he is a just God, okay? Uh, it's a violation of his nature and his character to uh, just let sin go. He has to act justly towards sin because of his nature. And this brings in uh, one of the atonement theories that we understand uh, what's happening or how uh, Christ dying for us affects us. And that's uh, a, a theory called penal substitutionary atonement. atonement. It means that because we've sinned, God sent a substitute to stand in our place. And his substitute takes upon himself, who is Jesus, takes upon himself all the wrath of God. And in doing so, uh, the wrath of God doesn't have to be placed on us because it's been placed on Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? That's a substitution that's been made on our behalf. And and it's for us, but it also, at the same time, satisfies his justice and it satisfies his love. I want to suggest another one that might sound strange to you, but if you read the early church fathers, you find that it's there and it's very prominent. In fact, for many of them, it was their primary model for looking at what Christ accomplished. And it's going to sound strange, but I'm going to put it out there because I think there's some truth to it. God must act justly towards uh, sin for Satan's sake. Okay. Now, this sounds strange, but when Adam and Eve sinned, many think that uh, when they did so, they gave over their dominion of this world to the enemy. And they, came, they themselves fell under the bondage of the enemy. And in order for uh, God to act responsibly here, he not only did it out of his character, but certainly he also did it because there's an accuser who constantly accuses the, uh, the people of God and, and everyone of their sin. 
And so if God just lets that go, he said to Satan, I'm not a just God. Okay, so he he takes the sin punishment upon himself and silences the enemy about this. Do you know that um, when uh, the accuser comes against us and accuses, we have an advocate who stands on the other side, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is in our corner. And we know that because he does that, that voice silences the voice of the enemy. And uh, some will call that the ransom theory of atonement. And that has some deep roots in the early church fathers. And then there's a, a third, and that God must act justly towards sin for our sake, yours and mine. Okay? He's, he needs to uh, show us the wickedness of sin and the greatness of his love. And some would call this the uh, moral influence theory. This is Peter Abelard's theory from around the turn of the first millennium. And uh, he, he believed that Jesus' act of atonement had a moral example for the rest of us. And I think that's true. In one sense, it tells us this is how bad sin is. It takes, it takes its God and it crucifies it. Okay? On the other side of it, it's saying this is how we live uh, the right the right life is by by loving to the point of self sacrifice. It shows us how we we sacrificially love towards God and others by by setting ourselves back. You know, the Christian call is not just to take up all of your uh, blessings and gifts from God and follow Him. It's take up your cross and follow Him. And so there's a there's a call in that. There's a moral example, and some call this the moral influence theory. Okay, so I'm not necessarily promoting one over the other. I think probably uh, the two most prominent that stand out in Scripture. Uh, I mean, we see even this one where Peter says, and Paul also, that we ought to look at how Christ lived and not please ourselves. We ought to live like him. But we see the other ones like the defeat of Satan and uh, the... the uh, satisfaction of the wrath of God in Christ. We see those as the most prominent in Scripture. All right, let's take a look at our passage here tonight. This is Romans 3. Let's read the whole chapter, and then we'll look at our verses in a little more detail. Okay, as we get ready to read that, let me set this in place, and maybe you'll see these things. Uh, Paul is explaining the gospel in the book of Romans, and that includes the need for it, why we need a gospel to begin with, uh, what the gospel means, because if you just bear out the historical facts, that doesn't tell us what the gospel means. We need to know, what does the gospel mean? So he sets out to do that, and then uh, he shows how it works, and eventually how we're supposed to respond to it. In chapter 1, he describes the fall of humanity away from God and why God's wrath is justified. The wrath of God is revealed against uh, from heaven against uh, uh, all ungodliness and unrighteousness, right? Romans 1.18 and following. So he there describes that fall. In chapter 2, he describes how the moral law condemns those without law, uh, without the law, the written law, and those with the written law. In chapter 3, he makes the case that all are guilty of sin. And so all stand condemned justly before God. So that brings us kind of into chapter 3 here. Uh, I have to confess to you that uh, I didn't know the scriptures too well when I was young. And uh, like a, a little kid, I didn't know the scriptures very well. And so I had this idea 
um, that I thought if a person was Jewish, they had a free ticket to heaven. And it, you, we talked about, you know, we're pro-Israel in our house, and we're in favor of the Jewish people. And I thought, well, anybody who's born Jewish has to, like, they got an extra head start with God. And so they're automatically going to heaven. And I didn't know the scriptures very well. If I had been taught uh, Romans, I probably would have thought differently about this. Uh, but I probably was too young to be interested. Paul himself, being Jewish, asks, is there advantage in being Jewish? And we're going to read this in just a moment. And his answer is yes and no. Yes and no. The yes is that we've received the word of God. The no is that because we haven't obeyed the word of God perfectly, we stand guilty under it. And so he says, yes, there's advantage. No, there's not advantage. Yes, there's advantage because we have knowledge. Uh, and no, there's not advantage because we've failed <laughs> to keep the knowledge that we have. And so he goes on to show that unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God even more. And however, that doesn't justify sin. It only shows God's righteous and condemning sinners, whoever they are, a condemnation which is just towards both Jew and Gentile, because all have sinned. The law is passed, judgment on all, so all are guilty of the law that uh, makes us conscious of our own sin. And while you don't find the word cross in this passage, everything relating to the cross is here. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. What advantage, verse 1, is there then in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let, the, let God be true and every human being a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Psalm 51, uh, by the way. But if our righteousness brings out God's, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? So in my argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may uh, result? Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's talking about uh, the Jewish people again. Not at all, for we have already been made, uh, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, their poison, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law... We become conscious of our sin. So he's talked here about how everybody's guilty. Everybody stands condemned before God. God is just in his proclamation of guilt. Okay, He's not 
Like, remember, David said, you're right in your judgments concerning me. That's what Paul's saying here. He's right in his judgments concerning all of us. So uh, when people say, for example, it's not fair that God sends people to hell. Romans 3 says it's fair. Are you with me? We're not like that. We might not like that, but it's true. Romans 3 says that's fair. What's probably less than fair for some of us is that some get to go to heaven. That's, that's an incredible blessing. Do you understand what I mean? That, it's, it, that if we all got what we deserved, that that would be our end result. It's by grace that people are saved. So this is Paul's argument in chapter 3 up to this point, that no one's justified by the works of the law. Some people had the law. They didn't keep it. Some people didn't have the law, but they had a law written on their heart, and they didn't even keep that. It's talking about the Gentiles there. And so Paul says we all stand condemned before him, and he's righteous in his dealings. So here in verse 21 and following, we're not going to find the word cross, as I said, but you will find redemption here, the sacrifice of atonement and shedding of blood are found. Let's uh, go ahead and read verse 21 and following. But apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, um, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did so to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that, sorry, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. All right, so in verse 21 here, we have a righteousness that's revealed in Christ. So take a look there at verse 21. That's our our text for this point. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So now Paul is taking a turn in his argument. He said, okay, chapter one, the Gentiles and and perhaps all people before God called out the Jewish people turned away from God. They had the knowledge of God. They turned away from that knowledge of God. They didn't worship God. They worship created things and they simply cast that off. And not only do they do things that are sinful, but they encourage others to do them. Then he comes into chapter 2, and he says to the, it appears there's a shift there into the Jewish population. He says, and you who stand condemning, uh, what gives you the right to do that? You are condemned too because you haven't obeyed the law either. And so he deals with the, the, the Jewish group there. And it seems that in that human way of thinking, people are trying to be justified by, by law-keeping, by by doing good, and you can still see this today, that somehow, even after 2,000 years of Christian preaching, I know our culture is moving away from God, but there's still this idea that, that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And it's not quite like that, is it? It's not quite like that. It's not like that, because it's not good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. It's saved people go to heaven, right? 
and a person can be good, and then we have to ask the question, what's good? Because somebody called Jesus good one time. He says, why do you call me good? None are good but God. What are you talking about? This good. And what we've done is we've taken the concept of God's goodness and we brought it down to human level. We've graded on a curve and we said, well, I'm better than them. And so I'm, I'm pretty good. But we forget about all the areas where we've sinned. Like all the areas where we've been uh, truly dastardly and grievous to God. We forget about that. And we write ourselves passes easily. Has anybody noticed the tendency? to give ourselves a break a little bit easier than other people. Like, well, I didn't mean that. But they surely meant that, and we'll hold other people, their feet to the fire, on something that we've done ourselves. So there's this uh, idea that being good is what does it, and that is accomplished by the works of law. And I'm not saying that we, we don't have to be righteous. We have to be righteous. Remember, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the that of the Pharisees, uh, You'll not see the, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. So there's a righteousness that needs to be there, but it's a righteousness that first of all is gift righteousness, and then it turns into practical righteousness as we walk with God. Okay, so he calls us to this kind of righteousness, but it's not as simple as good people go here and bad people go there. There's something else at work here, and so when Paul says, "But now." We might want to interpret this to mean there's a new system, okay? But I want to suggest to you that I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying here is that a system is being announced that previously has been hidden to some. And the new system he's suggesting is a righteousness that is by faith, a righteousness from God that has, is being made known. But he says the law and the prophets testify. So think about this. I think that... Uh, Righteousness by faith has always been the system. It's always been the system. There's a there's teachings um, in some streams of theology that teach uh, that there's like these covenants and dispensations in which God does it this way in this particular dispensation. Then there's the the law dispensation. There's the grace dispensation. And I really think that uh, Scripture will show, and Paul argues that it's always been by faith. It's always been by faith. Um, you can see uh, that in Romans chapter 4, the next chapter. He talks about Abraham wasn't justified by the law. He was justified by faith. Okay? And you remember, even when the law came, it wasn't the law that was justifying people. That was to be an expression of their trust and faith in God. And so you have uh, Israel often guilty. The primary sin that they're guilty of is not first idolatry. It's unbelief. The reason idolatry comes into play is because they don't believe God is sufficient in and of himself. They've got to add other deities on to secure their position in the world. They don't trust God. They're trusting something else or God plus something else. And so Adam and Eve, what was their sin? Was it eating the fruit? No. Their sin was unbelief. Did God really say? And when they stopped believing God and started believing the lie... That's when sin came into their heart. It wasn't just with the act of sin. It was something changed in them where they believed the lie. And so uh, I think it's always been by faith. Uh, and uh, the call to follow the law was a call to live by faith. But the law never justified anyone. Even as they brought their sacrifices... <coughs> To the, uh, to the temple to be sacrificed or the tabernacle before that. Uh, 
it was always this belief and anticipation that a Savior was coming. Where was the first preaching of the gospel? Does anybody remember in Scripture? They call it the Proto-Evangelion. Anybody know? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. This is right after the fall. God's speaking to Eve, and he says, you'll have a male descendant, and he's going to crush the serpent's head. The serpent's going to bite his heel, nip at his heel, but he ultimately is going to crush the serpent's head. And that is a theme that's carried out. Eve thinks that next descendant may even be the one that's going to deal a death blow. It's it's highly figuratively or figurative, but it means uh, that whatever the sin problem was is going to be dealt with by a human descendant that's coming. So already in Genesis three, the seed has been sown. The scarlet thread has begun to run through Scripture of a future Savior, and there's an anticipation of someone that's going to save. Now they may not have known uh, the. Identity. They may not have known the address of who Jesus was uh, or where he was going to be, but they had an idea that there was going to be a Savior, a Redeemer that was going to come and save them. And so as they bring their sacrifice to the temple, you know their ultimate faith isn't in that animal. Their ultimate faith is that God is going to provide a sufficient sacrifice. The next major move in the preaching of the gospel is to Abraham when he takes... He said, when God says to him, take your son, your only son, up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And he gets to that place. And you remember he tells Isaac, uh, Isaac says, we've got the wood, we've got everything we need. Where's the, where's the sacrifice? Where's the animal? And, he's, and Abraham says, the Lord will provide. Do you remember he takes him up on the mountain? And this is his son. And God uses very specific language there. Your son, your only son. Is, is that Abraham's only son? Literally? No, it's not. Because what other son does he already have? Ishmael. This is a son of a different kind. This is a miraculous son. And he says, sacrifice him on that mountain that I'll show you. And he takes him up there and he raises the knife to do the deed. And God says, stop. And there's a ram caught in the thicket. The Lord provides. And we get Jehovah Jireh from that scene. He knows God as provider, and so there, there the gospel is preached ahead of time because God is saying, not this son, your son and my son. A future descendant of Abraham, a son of God, is going to come and fulfill that sacrifice. And so I think that you can see these uh, images, these types of the gospel being preached ahead of time, and I think in Israel there is some kind of faith in a Redeemer that God will forgive their sins based on that. They may not know all the details, but at, at some point they're responsible for the knowledge that they have. And the knowledge they have is that God will forgive based on something that he himself is going to accomplish for them. So they trust, they believe in faith, not just in their own good works, but in God's goodness and willingness to forgive. How can David, a man who committed both murder and adultery, be called a man after God's own heart under an Old Testament scheme that thinks salvation or righteousness is by works. Can't. The only way that can be is because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of faith. That's the only way. That he believed God, just like Abraham. And it says in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. 
That's the system through all of Scripture, is faith credited with righteousness. All right, verse, uh, so I wanted to point out a couple things here. It says that uh, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, verse 21, has been made known. Made known here is revealed, disclosed, manifested, if you have the KJV. It goes on to say, to, to which the law and the prophets testify. They witnessed to this. They attested to this, that, um, that this was something that uh, was the way of salvation. The law and the prophets, is that Old Testament or new? That's old, isn't it? So in the Old Testament, they bear witness to this system. Um, and I also wanted to say here that uh, Paul sees himself as responsible for making this known. When he says the righteousness of God has been made known, he's part of that, making that known. Christianity is not a religion where things are done in the dark. Okay, I, I want you to take hold of this. I've been reading this uh, book that's really provocative uh, to me. The Gospel is Public Truth by Leslie Newbigin. He was a missionary in India. And he thinks that the Gospel is not just church truth, it's public truth. The whole world needs to know it. It's, it's a witness that needs to be born to, to the whole world. And so he makes the, uh, makes, he's making the case in this book that this is not just our truth. This is, this is truth that the whole world needs to know, and it's revolutionary. And so we don't have like secret societies with special passages for the initiated or the um, elite. All that is ours is available to anyone who will come to him. And we have a public witness. So when people ask, well, what are you, what are you doing? We can tell them this is what it's all about. We're not, we're not a secret society. You, you understand what I mean by that? Maybe not everybody's interested in what we have to say, but there's not secrets like special levels of initiation where you, you get into secret knowledge. I, I want us to be very careful about that because that's the way that Gnosticism worked. Gnosticism had said that, well, there's plain and ordinary mundane Christians, and then there's the Christians who have the secret knowledge, and they're kind of elite, and they have special knowledge, and they can really get at spirit stuff. No. Everything that we have is plainly given to us. Do you understand what I mean by that? There's not secret levels that you get to, oh, you're at level 15 now. We can tell you the secrets of God now. Now, anybody can go to the Bible and open it up and read it. And its plain meaning is there for us. And don't, I would encourage you, don't look for hidden meanings in Scripture. The Scripture code is ridiculous in terms of if you arrange the text this particular way, there's certain words that are there. Don't, don't buy into that. I encourage you, what it means is written there plainly for us to see. Um, yeah. So, Paul feels that it's his responsibility to make this known. And he says, uh, we, the law and the prophets testify to it. Verse 22 um, shows us this next part that... Uh, that righteousness comes through Christ. Righteousness comes through Christ. Okay, so he says, uh, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God's been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Verse 22, the righteousness 
This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace. All have sinned, all in the same way can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Righteousness given by faith. Righteousness given by faith. I'd like you to notice here uh, that this is this faith means a state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Okay. So what we want to be careful of here is the false idea that that believing uh, or faith here is talking about or, or believing in Christ is is talking about agreeing with a creed only. Okay. Creeds are good, and there's nothing wrong with agreeing with creeds, and I think they have their place. But if we're just agreeing to propositions and we're not relating to a person in trust, then we've fallen short of biblical faith. Faith needs to include the truths about God, but it also needs to include real trust in the person of Christ. Okay, so that that goes beyond even believing in an event. We should believe in the event of the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. That's part of it. But it's it goes beyond that to believing the person of Christ. We're trusting him. He says it's given by faith to those who believe. So we've got confidence in the reliability of the one trusted, who's Jesus. So let me ask you something. Do you just believe Jesus for heaven? Some people will live for God this way. That, well, I'm trusting God for heaven, but not really trusting him in the day-to-day. What do you think biblical faith looks like? Jesus says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Have you read that before? In Romans chapter, uh, excuse me, Matthew, I think it's Matthew 7. He says it in Matthew 7. He says it maybe a different way. Uh, Not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom, but they that do the will of the Father. And so that, that question is, do we really trust him if we're not living obediently to him, with him? Do we really trust him if we're not living in right relationship with him? So it's not just faith for heaven. It's faith in the day-to-day that trusts that he's uh, a worthy leader and he has wisdom for life. Okay, so, But there's a righteousness given through faith in Christ to all who believe in him. It's righteousness in it's righteousness that comes through believing in him as a person. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Uh, in the Greek here, it doesn't have Jew and Gentile. I think NIV puts that in there for clarity. There's no difference. has to relate to that, and it goes back to the rest of the chapter where Paul is contrasting or comparing Jew and Gentile, putting them in the same category. And then he says, for all have sinned. Who are the all? Both Jew and Gentile. All have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God, all fall short. Um, fall short is to fail to measure up in some way. It's to experience deficiency in some advantageous or desirable uh, area, to lack, to be lacking, to go without, to fall short of God's glory. We don't measure up to his glory. So this tells us the standard of righteousness. So I can be pretty good in comparison with a lot of people. And so can you, right? Like we're bet we can think, man, those people. That's a real. 
he's a real scoundrel. She's a real scoundrel. And it's easy to make those kinds of comparisons, but what about when we measure ourselves against God? How do, how do we measure up? Not very good. None of us measure up. And that's the standard by which we have to go. Have we, re, have we attained to God's righteousness? And the answer is no, that we haven't met, met God's righteousness in our lives apart from through faith where it's, where it's granted to us and his nature comes within us and his spirit helps us to live out the righteousness of God. We've fallen short. But he says, but all can be justified freely by his grace Who's his right there? Who's his grace specifically? God's grace. And here it's talking about the Father in particular, the glory of God. Uh, I know both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God, but a lot of times the way that Paul uses it, he's setting apart uh, God the Father, and he uses Lord usually for Jesus and then the Spirit referring to the Spirit of God. And so here it's talking about uh, when it says His grace, it's the Father's grace. And the interesting thing, and don't don't buy into this, but there's a lot of people who want to make the Father an angry figure, and um, He's the angry God of the Old Testament. But Jesus is the gentle Jesus, and God's God's the mean and vindictive God of the Old Testament, Father, and then the Son, of course, is the one that shows grace. And it's almost like they think the son had to convince the father to do this salvation thing. And that's not really right. What we see is that this is salvation is the plan and the working of the Trinity. Um, that the father is involved in all that salvation has to offer. And it's his grace extended through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Okay, So it's because the father has grace but it's through the redemption given us uh, through Jesus Christ. Redemption here is to release or set free. Um, The analogy is being uh, freeing a slave. So when it talks about redemption, it's talking about buying or purchasing our freedom. Freedom from what, do you think? What's that? Death? Okay. Anything else? What? Sin? The hot place, okay, yeah, it's from Satan, yeah, we were under the dominion of Satan, and now we've been brought into the kingdom of the son whom he loves, there's freedom, We've we've been purchased back in some way by the blood of Christ, and this came by Christ Jesus, this came by Christ Jesus, so uh, righteousness uh, comes to us through Christ. Somehow, righteousness comes to us through Christ. He's not fully laid this out for us yet, but it's a righteousness that's given through faith. So this righteousness that God expects of us, it's a gift righteousness given by f- that is received by faith. Okay. Let's look at this final part here, verses 25 uh, and 26. And this uh, is righteousness demonstrated in Christ. Righteousness demonstrated in Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Okay, the, 
he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So here it's a, a righteousness that's demonstrated uh, in Christ, a righteousness demonstrated in Christ. Notice uh, it says, first of all here, that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Let's take a few moments on this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Presented here uh, is kind of a soft word, but it means to cause a, uh, a manifest state or condition of something. Okay, So something is manifest. The NAS says displayed publicly. Uh, NRSV put forward. So God presented Christ. God put forward Christ. God displayed him publicly as a sacrifice of atonement. How did Jesus die? Was it in a corner somewhere? We talked about secrets and uh, uh, secret kind of initiations and uh, secret things that have happened. Jesus didn't die secretly. He died publicly. He died for all to see. Anybody who walked past could see what God was doing or at least uh, what was happening to Christ there on the cross. So God presented Christ. And then this next part is significant. It was a sacrifice of atonement, which means uh, something by which sins are forgiven. It can mean expiation or it can mean propitiation. And maybe it's good to know the difference between those two. Uh, when we talk about propitiation, uh, we're talking about the removal of wrath. Okay, And so uh, because of what Christ has done, I think both of these are there, but uh, some like to emphasize one and some like to emphasize another, and usually it falls along your theological um, biases. But propitiation means the removal of wrath. Okay, So in other words, it's a removal, but it's the wrath of God's taken away. Not necessarily the sin, but God's wrath towards that sin is taken away. That's propitiation. Uh, the other understanding here is expiation. Expiation is the removal of sin. So it takes the sin away. And you can see both of these. You can see both of these in the sacrificial system. You can see uh, through the burnt offering or the sin offerings as an animal was killed and they confess the sins and they put them on that animal and then the animal is killed. Okay, And uh, the symbolism was that God's going to forgive the sinner because a sacrifice has been made. Okay? Not necessarily the removal of sin, but the removal of wrath. But then they had another practice, which was the scapegoat. You heard of scapegoating? It's where you put some sin on something else and they take it for you. And so they would confess uh, their sin and place the hand on the head of the goat, and then they would send it out into the wilderness. And there was, there's a whole uh, weird thing related to that. Uh, that happened, but the idea was that that goat carried the sin away, expiation, okay? And I want to suggest to you that in Christ, I think both of those happen, that God's wrath is removed, and I think God also removes our sin. And I think a good scripture related to this is Second Corinthians uh, 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And it talks about in scripture him taking our sins. He takes them upon himself, and I think in so doing, he removes guilt from our lives. 
So I think there's both. But here, uh, as it talks about uh, propitiation or expiation, whichever is is meant by this, uh, the NAS has a has propitiation here, a sacrifice of propitiation. Um, the other other translations call this the mercy seat. Okay, so here's an interesting thing. God presented Christ as a mercy seat. Not odd. The New English translation says that this, uh, in the footnotes, calls this the place of satisfaction. A sacrifice or a place of satisfaction. Christ is then the place of satisfaction. I want to show you a picture. We're about out of time here, but if if we don't get anything else, that's a little bit blurry. Okay. Can you see that well enough? Anybody tell what that is? Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Anybody know what this is right here? The mercy seat. Okay. I I don't know cuz I don't I've never seen it. Never seen the Ark of the Covenant. So I don't know if there's dimensions put on the It's just, what <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. So so I don't know exactly. This is just a representation, but we know that this is the Ark of the Covenant. We know how big the actual dimensions of the box are. And then up here between the the uh, cherubim are the is the mercy seat. And what this is saying, if we're understanding this right, is that God made Christ to be the mercy seat. He's the mercy seat. Think of that. That means... There's no need for the Ark of the Covenant. Even if they find the Ark of the Covenant, there's no need for it anymore because it's been replaced. Are you with me on that? We sometimes get fascinated with our our Jewish heritage and our Jewish roots, and that's great, but we can't come to put our confidence in the old ways. That's what Hebrews is about, is remember that what Christ is is better. Christ offers us something better that... All of these things are types and symbols. Yeah, they're tangible, and it's fun to see them. But when it comes down to it, the reality is far more significant than the representation. And if we found the Ark of the Covenant, it might become like the serpent in the wilderness, a powerless idol. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic, and now I think it's been replaced by Christ. What do we, what do we know about where the Ark of the Covenant was. I'm going to go back and maybe you can just imagine the detail of this in your line. I don't know why from here to there it's not. It's blurry, but can you tell what this area is? If you're in the tabernacle, this bigger room, the inner court, the holy place, right? And then this is the most holy place or the holy of holies. And what stands between the holy place and the holy of holies? The veil, a curtain, right? And uh, who could go back into there? And how often could they go in there? On the on what day? Okay. And so, would you agree with me that the ark of the mercy seat is cut off from all the people most of the time? They can't see it. Maybe when they're carrying the ark on the poles, as they should. And people could see the Ark of the Covenant, but nobody gets to really see the Ark of the Covenant. And nobody gets to see the mercy seat. 
But what Romans is telling us is that the mercy seat was presented. He was put out on display for all to see. Do you see that? Look at it again, verse 25. God presented Christ. God put on public display Christ as the mercy seat. Before, it's hidden back in the back of a room. Now, the mercy seat, the place to which we go to receive mercy, is put out for everyone to see in Jesus. The gospel is public truth. And he said, it says he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. This is a demonstration of his righteousness. He, he first of all, puts Jesus out there publicly. Anyone who looks to Jesus, remember the comparison, I think it's in John, where it says, uh, like uh, the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And, you know, when people come to him and look to him, there's healing, there's salvation, there's healing. He goes on to say he he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay? How could that demonstrate uh, God's righteousness, how he's, he's doing things right, his justice, his righteousness, to put Jesus out there for all to see, to, to have, him, have him killed. To demonstrate here means to show, to prove, means uh, that something establishes evidence or verification of something. How is it a demonstration of his of God's righteousness? Look at that next part of the verse, verse 25. In his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. Okay, what does that say about, uh, about God in the past? He was merciful. That not everybody who committed a sin got zapped right away. Some people did. Some people didn't. Remember how it says in Scripture, some men's sins go before them, some follow after. And there's that strange, mysterious thing about, like in the Psalms, where why do the wicked prosper and all of that. Um, Paul talks about it in Acts 17 when he's talking to the uh, Athenians. He says that in times past, God overlooked such things, but in these days, he demands that we repent, turn from our sins. Remember? Well, I think this is why he demonstrates his righteousness in this way. Because in the past, it looked like people were getting away with sin. Where's the justice in that? He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at this time. To be just and the one who justifies. How does this demonstrate God's righteousness? Maybe it looked like some got away with sin, but nobody ever gets away with sin. It either goes two places, one of two places. Where does it go? On the sinner, and they pay for it either in this life and in eternity or in eternity if they seem to get away with it in this life. It goes on the sinner, or where does the other place it could go? Sin. On Jesus. And he died for the sins of the whole world, but not everybody receives that because it has to be received by faith. It has to be appropriated by faith. It has to be made effective through faith. And so in doing this, God demonstrates his righteousness at the present time. He doesn't let anybody get away with sin. He placed the sin of the world on Jesus, certainly. And nobody gets away with sin. Sin always gets paid. 
it always, the price always gets paid. The debt always gets covered in one way or another. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, okay? God's just. Though it looks like somebody got away with sin, he took the sin upon himself. And this should affect how we relate to other people. I'm going to talk about that in just a second because i got to close. And he's the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So he gives righteousness to those who put their faith in Christ. I know I probably haven't done justice to this subject tonight, but I, I think there's some things that come from this. The first, as a result of the gospel, we should look at our own sin differently in light of the cross. In light of the cost of sin, that it's not something small. Our sin did that to Jesus. Okay, so let's not take it lightly too. We should look at justice differently in light of the act that God performed, that he doesn't let people get away with sin. Sin is covered by Jesus. And when it uh, when somebody commits a wrong against us, in light of what Jesus has done, uh, we should think about them differently too. And thirdly, uh, we should look at God differently in light of the gift. Because God has given us, and maybe you already look at God like this, but we ought to be grateful for what he's done for us. Because he died, he died for our sins, and he's, he's imputed to us righteousness because of Christ through faith. Not because we live perfectly, but because we've believed God, and he's going to count it as righteousness. Amen. Let's stop there for tonight. Thanks for your attention. Why don't we stand and thank the Lord for his gift. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and all that that means, that you are a just God who who takes sin seriously. You didn't just dismiss it as if it were no big deal. You confronted it personally in the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that the mercy seed hasn't been put in a back corner somewhere where no one can see, but you sent your servants to the world to tell other people, here's the way to mercy. Here's the way to righteousness. Here's the way to be forgiven. Here's the way to heaven. Here's the way to God. Thank you for that, Lord. We pray you help us to live out all the implications of the gospel that we've talked about tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.